WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week, our guest is the author of the new Aconite Books Marvel prose novel, Rogue Untouched, as well as a former editor at Vertigo and the author of a number of other romance and young adult novels, Alisa Quitney. Welcome to the show, Alisa. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we like to start off uh, with this question for first time guests. Uh, what are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, first, I, I know that I must have started reading some of the, you know, Richie Rich and Dot and those. Mm -hmm. um, but the first ones that I remember reading and loving are um, Shanna the She-Devil, who had this mini-series stint when she first appeared as uh, uh, a sort of feminist Jane Goodall Batman hybrid. She was angry and moody and um, constantly arm wrestling the guy who wanted to be her love interest and saying, you know, I have, I have no time for romance. I must <laughs> save the animals. Um, and there was the cat. Uh, which was, she later became Tigra, but I liked her before she was, it was very strange. I, it was sort of like the beginning of Charlie's Angels and then it turned into the Stepford Wives. And then she got these sort of claws with a costume and she had an older female mentor. Anyway, she was great. That also didn't last very long. Um, and then what I really loved for a long time were House of Mystery, House of Secrets, um, a bunch of the, I think it was the Red Circle and Charlton Horror, which were weirder. Um, and so those were, those were my earliest, biggest loves, but I was also reading and liking, um, oh gosh, I, a lot of, so I was friends with, um, Dan and Josh Braun went on to um, be film guys, but, but they had a wonderful collection of superhero comics, mostly DC. And so I was pretty up to date. They were how I learned about things like Bizarro Superman. And I'm realizing I'm talking for a very long time. And, and then in college, I discovered the X-Men. <sighs> okay, <laughs> there we go. Full circle, completed, <laughs> 360. Um, but yeah, so uh, you are here to talk uh, primarily about Rogue Untouched, a uh, prose novel from uh, Aconite Books' uh, Marvel Heroines line. Uh, I will let my uh, good buddy and esteemed co-host here read the teaser text for the listeners. Jeez. Young Rogue's life is a mess. She's on her own, working a terrible diner job, and hiding from everyone. The powers she has started to develop are terrifying. When your first kiss is al almost kills the guy, it's hard to trust anyone, even yourself. Then two people arrive in town who could change her life, and she finally gets a choice. Try her luck with the big-haired billionaire who claims to be scouting for gifted interns, or trust the rakish Cajun gambler with the eerie red eyes. But these two aren't the only ones interested in a mutant just coming into her powers. Rogue will have to master her abilities and decide her own fate before someone else does. Uh, I, I always have Matt read the solicit text because he, he brings a little dramatic flair to it. But this time, he put a little bit of Southern twang on it, and I really appreciate it. That was a, that was a nice touch. <laughs> just, just, just a tick. That was, that was really good. And Rakish Cajun is, for some reason, very hard to say. 
It's the, um, what's that? When you get uh, like repeating vowels, uh, not not alliteration because it's not in the beginning of the word. Uh, assonance, that's the word for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, man. But anyway, uh, so uh, how does one become the author of a Marvel prose novel? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I, I am sure that there are, are many ways. I, I did this once before when uh, Stuart Moore was doing some of the prose novels. And Stuart mm -hmm. had worked with me um, uh, at Vertigo. We were on staff together as, as editors. And um, he actually, at one point, actually put an anagram of my name on my door, which I loved. It was, I Twinkie, I Slake. And, uh, and I remember, I just appeared one day and I looked at it and I thought, I, I really like that. I'm just going to keep that as my um, kind of bizarro name. Anyway, uh, Stuart Moore, again, again figures into this because I was at a San Diego Comic-Con. Um, I think it was the last year when such things happened and humans met in their multitudes. Mm -hmm. And um, and Stuart, I, I don't think I managed to connect with Stuart and I was just, I was at that stage of a con where you, you, you stink of flop sweat and all you want to do is get on the plane and go, you've had a good time, but you're wrung out. And uh, but So was, Sunday. <laughs> or, or worse yet late saturday and you have that whole other day to go you can still gotta sit through the eisners there buddy <laughs> post eisner post everything so i am i am even more of a desiccated husk and um and but i go down to the pool to hang with Stuart, and uh he was there with sven larson who uh I, I'm very bad with titles and I was just in my completely like, I'm not trying to get work anymore. I'm just going to hang out and talk about how fucking tired I am of people. And oh, oh, you're working at Marvel now. Oh, you're the, you're the vice president of, uh, oh, you've got, you're looking for writers. So it was that kind of a conversation where I was just like <laughs> trying to um, recalibrate into, uh, you know, writer who would like to get projects. <laughs> and uh, and it turned out that he was taking the same plane back. So I again then relaxed because you know you you it's like dating. You know you you want to seem interested but not eager. You want to seem you know not too available, just available enough. And anyway, it was great. There we were. You know we shared a cab to the to the airport, and. Um, and it was very relaxed. And he began to ask me, was I ever interested in writing any Marvel characters? And I think I did something pretty similar to how I started this interview, where I was just like, Shana the She-Devil, the cat. And, um, and he, he was saying, you know, anyone else? And I said, a rogue. And I explained my theory about um, rogue being the avatar of a certain kind of female adolescent sexual insecurity. And, um, and for some reason, he was not frightened by this. And, uh, and so he put me in touch with Aconite and, uh, and it happened from there. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so uh, Aconite obviously is, is uh, pumping out a lot of these, uh, these books now. You know, there's ones for uh, Domino and Elsa Bloodstone and, and various uh, mutants and, and Asgardian characters. Um, you know, as someone who's written quite a few novels over the years, you know, how does the process for, for this 
compare with, you know, uh, with your romance novels, for example, or, or one of your, your, you know, other all ages fantasy novels, something like that? Sure. So I've written, first of all, in a lot of different genres. So my first novel was literary fiction and got reviewed in the New York Times. And I've written romance, I've written urban fantasy, and I've written a lot of stuff that kind of crosses genres with a bit of um, suspense and a bit of, um, of God once I made the mistake of trying to do espionage. Never again. But, um, but every book is, is a little bit of its own adventure, for me at least, where it, you know, you go in hoping that you know how to write the book and, and then it's, it's a little bit different. But this was a little even more different than my other books. So the last two prose novels I'd written were a young adult sort of um, steampunk alternate history books. Um, and so it wasn't completely removed from comics in the sense that your world building, you have to establish your world and the rules of your world along with your characters and, and the tone of your, your story. But with Marvel, with Marvel, what they wanted was they wanted to know, what are you going to do? What are all the points you're going to hit? And I can do that, you know, in a heartbeat. Oh, so it's going to be a coming of age story for Rogue. And it's going to be sort of a reset button so that new readers uh, who may know a bit from the animated show or a little bit from the comics or just from the movies, they can feel really secure just starting in with her and, and getting to know this character. And, um, and if I have the freedom to, I'd like to jiggle things around so that we can bring Gambit in earlier and you know, begin that relationship and that dance. So she's trying to figure herself out and she's trying to figure out a relationship before she's fully figured herself out. So all of this I knew how to do and I talked about other things I wanted to do in terms of um, so I wanted to talk about, you know, superheroes are all about invented families. So I was going to do a setup of that. Um, but, but Aconite and Marvel wanted more. They wanted like a really full synopsis. Now, I am not a pantser where I just, in, in a literary fashion, I discover the book as I write it. Because I'm usually on a tighter deadline than that. Mm -hmm. But I'm also not a complete, you know, complicated synopsis plotter. But I faked it. I'm like, okay, I'll do a complete synopsis. And uh, so I did what I considered a very complete synopsis. And Marvel said, yeah, where's act two? And I'm like, oh God, I was hoping they would notice. You know, I figure out act two along the way. I gave you the beginning, I gave you the end. Um, yes, but you wrote yada, yada, yada in the middle. And that's where I got. <laughs> yeah, so I went in and I, you know, uh, crafted an act two, you know, because yeah, I understand a book needs a middle. And uh, now in the best of, so they approved, they approved this, they approved, you know, I picked which characters I wanted. And they told me, well, actually, you know, you can have this character, this character is actually um, about to, you know, have a big movie. And so this isn't the time to use this character. So that's no problem. I will pick this other character. It's all fine. I get it approved. And now in the best of times, my, I don't follow a synopsis precisely. Now, I actually teach writing, and I've often said to, to you know, newer writers, you don't have to follow a synopsis exactly. 
it's like a, a map for your road trip. And along the way, you may see things that, um, you know, you didn't realize were there, like a giant ram head. When I was in Australia, I wanted to take a detour and go up inside the giant ram head. And usually it's fine. And, you know, I even go back and forth between my, my story and my synopsis, story synopsis. And so by the end, sometimes my synopsis does look like the book I've written, but only because I've been rewriting my synopsis. This is in the best of times. However, I was writing this during the pandemic. And now I know that everyone's had a different pandemic. This is, you know, some people were sitting alone, very lonely, needing distraction and churned out, you know, an amazing amount of, of writing. Other people were, you know, nurturing small humans and that complicated things. My situation was that I um, moved my mother in with me and it turned out that uh, that was a more complicated situation because my mom's getting older. And uh, so it, it, I, I was suddenly becoming much more of a caretaker than I, I had been. And my adult kids were helping me. Anyway, I'm sorry, this is becoming like a confessional, but I finally managed to finish the book uh, and uh, I handed it in to my Aconite editor, who's got, she's got a wonderful, you know, accent. It's kind of a, you know, you know, nothing John Snow kind of accent. And so everything she says sounds delicious to me. And she said in her delicious, you know, nothing John Snow voice, oh, this is sort of putting me in a difficult position. Lee. I can't do, I can only do a cut. Like, oh, you're sort of putting me in a difficult position, Lisa. And I'm like, oh, what, what's wrong? And she said, well, some of our authors have departed slightly from the synopsis and Marvel had conniption fits. But you, you left your synopsis entirely by the wayside, traveled somewhere else entirely, and included a character you haven't mentioned in your synopsis in a major role. And I said, oh, it's gonna be fine. It's gonna be fine. You know, at the point where my heart's going like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm a professional, this is gonna be fine. I said, I'm gonna write Marvel a letter. Kids, by the way, if you're listening to this, do not try this at home. And if you do do this, don't talk about it in an interview. I'm old, I don't care anymore. So anyway, I wrote the letter to Marvel saying, here's why I made all of these changes. And I did, I did have a reason besides the fact that the pandemic had eaten my brain and I'm not a very organized person. Um, and so when I did explain my thought processes and why I had done it, they, they actually gave me retroactive dispensation. It was kind of like, is anyone Jewish here? You know, there's that moment where, where Queen Esther, okay, good. So you, you'll understand this. Queen Esther goes to King Ahasuerus in his throne room without being asked. And if he doesn't reach out his scepter, that's it. They're just going to kill her. And there's that moment where he reaches out his scepter and, and says, you know, what do you want? Anything want to half my kingdom. Uh, it was like that, except Marvel didn't offer me half the kingdom, but they did not force me to rewrite the second half of the book. So I, I was very grateful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so uh, you, you did mention, uh, you know, uh, in, in the initial segment that, you know, your, your, your kind of comics reading experience, uh, or at least the part you told us about, uh, ended with X-Men. So, you know, uh, how, I, I guess, at what point uh, had you started reading? You know, what was your knowledge base 
going into this because obviously, and we can, you know, talk about this later. There are some very deep pulls in this book <laughs> because you've got, you know, 60 years of, of, of characters and, and, and every time they introduce a new wave and they get more, you know, sort of obscure and everybody has their favorites and all, and all that. But uh, you know, um, yeah. Where, where did, where did you get started? <laughs> I guess with X-Men. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so I'll just, mentioned that when I was working at Vertigo, it was an advantage. I loved comics. I had grown up with comics, but I was not a fan who really knew their stuff backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. I have never been, even when my brain was younger and fresher, the kind of person who could say to you, oh, of course that was in, you know, <laughs> issue three of that storyline. You know, even stuff I've worked on, I'm like, wait a minute, I need to go and look at it and remember. I remember mm -hmm. stories. So I don't, I don't have this encyclopedic, how do you say that? Encyclopedic? Encyclopedic. Encyclopedic. I can't even say the word, but I certainly don't have that kind of knowledge of the X-Men. Mm -hmm. What I have is a deep old affinity for them. I started reading them with the Chris Claremont stuff. Um, I continued reading them in the 90s and I did some of the, um, uh, Alpha Flight, New Mutants, and I, you know, I, I just enjoyed them a lot. Um, back when I was working for Vertigo, we were getting Marvel comics, and when I wasn't inundated with work, I was, you know, continuing to read them. But in a haphazard way, we'd get this huge stack of comics, and uh, I would just sort of say, oh, oh, look, I like this character, and I'd read it, and then months would go by where I wasn't able to keep up. So I I have a feel for what the characters have been through at various points. I have a feel for the, the, the strong points of their personalities. I've watched all the old, um, uh, all the, they're not old now. What do you call the X-Men movies? Vintage? I watched the Vintage <laughs> X-Men movies. Um, New classics? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> theory that the X-Men movies were how Marvel was figuring out how to do their superhero franchise. Um, and I, I, I certainly remembered watching all of them and I fully intended to re-watch them before I started this. And then the pandemic happened and life happened. And so I, I couldn't even do that. So in terms of nuts and bolts, what do I remember? You know, my feeling about Rogue was that she was funny and vulnerable. She was she had a sense of humor and she had a bit of a chip on her shoulder and she had this toughness and vulnerability that went hand in hand. And that felt like a key part to, to who she was. She was someone who was, you know, clearly had desires and was, you know, sexual, but also was incredibly conflicted about it. And all of those things made her so appealing to me as a character. And, uh, and then I had, I had read uh, Kelly Thompson's newer stuff mm -hmm. and uh, just loved it. And it reminded me of just how much fun Rogue is when she's in a, a good writer's hands. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 interesting that, uh, you know, you mentioned being at Vertigo and, and getting some of the Marvel stuff, uh, you know, kind of spying on the competition, especially because, you know, when Vertigo was at its peak, so, you know, so was X-Men in terms of, you know, commercial uh, 
popularity, uh, you know, because like, I think the cartoon was out around that same time too. So the, you know, all those things just kind of working uh, in uh, in transit. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, a- after after all this time, you know, do you find that that one medium, you know, prose or comics, uh, you know, do you find one of them more challenging to write for than the other? Um, yes, the more challenging medium is the one I'm writing in right now, whichever that one is, whatever it is I'm writing in, I think, oh my God, this is so much harder next time. I really going to enjoy the freedom of doing whatever the other one is. That said, what I, I am a collaborative person by nature. I mean, for example, when I was reading Marvel comics, I don't remember ever thinking this is the competition. I was just thinking about stories and the fact that I got free comics. And um, it, it felt very collaborative. The fact that we were getting free physical Marvel comics said to me, we're not two companies at war with each other. We're two people in the same field wanting to keep abreast of what the other people are doing. And uh, it, it felt like that. So, um, but in terms of, I've just been thinking, I'm, I'm writing a mini series for Ahoy Comics right now. And I've been thinking about, I'm on issue three, and I've been thinking about, do I stay in a tighter point of view, which is what I tend to do with my novels, um, which has a lot of intimacy, or do I allow myself to get a little bit more cinematic and go sideways and show, you know, how other people are being impacted by something? And I'm I'm leaning right now towards going that more cinematic route, and I, and yet I don't want to lose as much of the intimacy of storytelling as I can bring to. To, to the comics. Um, I mean, in, in prose, you're, you're able to get inside characters' heads to a greater degree. And that's a, a fun thing to play with. But when you're telling a story directly with visuals as well, and when you're collaborating with an artist whom you have a great rapport with, it feels magical. It's a dance, you know? And, um, I'm working with Alain Morissette, who's just fabulous. And so I get to say, you know, hey, I've been thinking about this. How, what do you think about that? And he'll say, fine, look at this. And he'll show me the page he's just drawn. And there's this great back and forth where, you know, prose tends to be more solitary. What is, what is the mix of sort of fan to non-fan that you have to keep in mind uh, when you're writing a book like Rogue. Like, you know, I, I imagine that, that you know, Matt and I, two 40-something men with 30-plus years of X-Men baggage, you know, we're not intended to be the target market for this book. But, you know, damned if we haven't been messaging back and forth all week, like, oh, who do you think, you know, this person is supposed to be? Oh, that's this person. Oh, shoot, I didn't even think of that. You know, you know what I mean? But there's also plenty of people who are supposed to come in. And like you mentioned, you know, from the ground up. So I, I guess, you know, what, what is the balance there to your mind? Oh, that's such a good question. I, my first duty, I always feel, is to the complete newbie. If mm-hmm. the story doesn't work for someone who has never heard of the X-Men before, then I haven't done my job. But on the other hand, if the story doesn't work without seeming boring or repetitive or like it's, you know, X-Men light, 
to someone who's been an X-Men fan, then I also haven't done my job. So I, I guess I try and approach, it, it's, you know, I do improv and there's a term in improv of doing every scene to the top of your intelligence. And that just means being very focused on a lot of things that overlap with writing. Start a scene as late as possible. Start it in the middle of something if you can. You know, don't answer any questions that, you know, a, a reader hasn't already been saying, wait, what's that about? And then you answer it, not, you know, just exposition for the sake of it. So I, I try to approach all the characters, whether they're established characters or whether they're, uh, you know, my own inventions, by locating them within myself and sort of thinking, you know, as if I were writing it for an actor and making it a fully fledged role. And then, you know, if it is a character who's got a history with the X-Men, I want to get, if I can, the dialogue right enough, the characterization right enough so that people will say, oh yeah, that feels right. And include something fun if I can. And, um, and then if I'm creating my own character, I'm thinking I need to make this cool enough so that somebody doesn't feel like, oh, why did she waste my time with this new character when she could have used formaldehyde, ma'am? <laughs> Did you remember the Legion? I thought that was a Legion of Superheroes character, actually. <laughs> no, no, that's formaldehyde lad. That, 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 so close. <laughs> I, yes, I, um, yes, I realized that was a Legion joke um, that I hadn't mentioned. I was a fan of the Legion, and for me, like, there's a direct link between the Legion and the X-Men. For sure. Both so, so opera. Absolutely. Um, so you, you t kind of glanced, took this question as a glancing blow earlier, but I'm curious, uh, when it came to the character selection, knowing it was a rogue novel, were there certain characters that you were expected to hit and then you had to kind of go Digging because I mean you've got the the very logical characters Gambit, my, my favorite ex couple Mystique and Destiny, and ah, <laughs> and then you've got a couple of like some serious deep cuts. I mean Nature Girl, I mean Zeitgeist who I can count the number of appearances on one hand, Blind Spot who I can count the number of appearances when it comes to storylines on one finger. He had no first name. Yeah. So I was kind of wondering how and where those choices kind of came from. Well, it comes from having been a Vertigo editor and knowing that uh, even in my pandemic adult state, that if I were going to be adding in characters, that people who knew the X-Men would have fun with the deep cuts um, and that Marvel would not have a conniption and say, dear God, we were about to have Nature Girl be a major character in our new movie. You'll have to take her out. Um, so that was a gamble that I, I did. So I, was, I went shopping for obscure characters. And sometimes I just couldn't find an obscure character that exactly fit the bill of what I was looking for. So that's, that, that's sort of how I did it. I mean, with, we had 
for a long time, I mean, I think as everyone knew, Vertigo was composed of Karen taking some obscure character. I think there was one like Ultron, the something alien, you know. And Ultra it, the multi-alien. Ultra the multi-alien. Karen was just trying to remember that. And then she's like, it was Ultra the multi-alien. Anyway, and, you know, and then she would give it to, you know, some, some mad genius of a Brit. And, uh, <laughs> and suddenly we have a new book. The... Uh... Ed, one of Ed Brubaker, who's now John, one of his first things was the Prez Reichard one shot with Eric Schenauer. That, I mean, granted by that point, Gaiman had already done the issue, the same issue with Alred. But I mean, the fact that I've talked to people who don't realize how many of those Sandman characters are, you know, horror hosts. I mean, everybody knows Cain and Abel, but Lucian and Eve and the witches all come from those like weird little corners and that was all like so delightful to me i i just i i loved the weird characters i've always been drawn to the weirder powers and i'm trying to remember was it the omega men there were there were bunches of different titles what was the character i think her name was mary she looked like a beautiful blonde woman, except she had this enormous hulking physique. And then there were some other, there was a guy who looked like a fish. They were a superhero team. I think they were DC. Anyway, okay. I, I loved really weird superheroes. And, um, and that was what drew me to the X-Men. So for me, it was always the weirder, the better. And as anyone who reads this book will realize, I also like me a bit of body horror. So, you know, it's like a bit of body horror, a bit of, and, and the, you know, with, with a prose novel, you've got, as you do with comics, this unlimited special effect. So, you know, I always sort of see the movie in my head and I think, I can do anything. I can, you know, we can, we, we can do all kinds of horrible reanimator stuff. Um, and uh, I, I just find that uh, appealing. And you also, you know, in the mix also got to create some characters. Uh, I did have to do some cursory Googling first, but, <laughs> uh, you know, there, 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 there's the, uh, the, the, swol the giant pig man with the, you know, voice like Antonio Banderas. So I didn't create him. What? No, I didn't. I go, will it? Gosh, darn it. <laughs> you know why? Because you probably looked him up under the name Gongora, right? I, I did. I did. The pig. He's only called the pig. So he was in a bunch of, he was a slaver. Um, he's in some Gambit miniseries and, um, and he's Spanish and he's a slaver and he's only called the pig. And as far as I can tell, looking like a pig is his only established power. Huh. I'll have to turn in my card now. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I saw that and I know what is wrong with me but like I was looking for um I was looking for you know a, a good antagonist and I saw this gigantic pig slaver that had a history with with uh, Gambit and I thought oh so little has been done with him I have to admit when there are at one point somebody did ask me if I um had any ideas you know for to do something with Hellblazer and this was gosh, maybe six years ago. And I thought, oh yeah, maybe I had ideas for Hellblazer 20 years ago, but I can't think of anything that hasn't been done 
three times by brilliant people. And, and I find that somewhat intimidating. So I, I needed the reset button for me as well. And so a character like the pig who didn't even have a name. So I was free to create backstory and to do stuff with him. Uh, just felt really appealing. Although, I mean, I don't know how much to go into, but one of the things that I discovered as I was writing The Pig, I'm gonna try and do this in as least spoilery a way as possible, but sure. this will show you my writing process. So I looked at the artwork of The Pig in one of those Gambit uh, miniseries, and I just thought about what it would feel like to be in his body, what it would mean to be in that body. And I thought, I think he would need um, hand uh, crutches, you know, to support his wake. And then I thought, but wait, then is he going to be like a disabled character? And what does that mean if he has a disability? And I thought about it. I talked it, with, it over with my friend, Al Davison, who's a brilliant comic book artist and writer, creator, and also has uh, a disability and, and has helped make me more aware. And I realized I really didn't want to go, go that way with uh, the pig. And then I thought about the metaphor of that, you know, it's so complicated when, especially when you're dealing with the X-Men where the, everything is anyway, a metaphor about minorities, discrimination. And sometimes if you're not thinking as rigorously as you can, you can fall into these traps. So I'm thinking, okay, so are the people who look human, the good people and the people who look more monstrous, you know, quotation marks, the bad people. And is that what I want to say? And am I in control of the story if, if I'm saying it implicitly, even though it's not what I mean to say? So this was part of my letter to, <laughs> to Marvel explaining why I ended up, I mean, honestly, why I ended up changing some things around. So I thought, ooh, how do I deal with it? And I thought about it. And what I ended up doing was um, going into a different direction with the pig and you know, having um, some interesting things about him that get revealed in the course of the book. And there is an even bigger bad, you know, behind and above him. And that was the character that I had not, definitely not cleared with Marvel initially. But once again, I went skimming for, you know, um, weird, you know, fish that lurk in, you know, caves where people haven't been looking recently, I think. Now, actually, I've just seen that that character may have been used in something more, uh, more popular. But at the time, at least I had the delusion that mm -hmm. she was, uh, oh, I think I've just done a spoiler, but that, yes, that character was obscure. So, uh, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned this early, uh, early on, but uh, we didn't touch on it, but I wanted to bring, come back around to it. You mentioned the idea of Rogue as an avatar for a certain type of, of teenage insecurity. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Absolutely. Although in the 90s, I required a beer before I went into my Cyclops and Rogue riff. So um, without a beer, uh, I thought that Cyclops was an avatar of a certain kind of young adolescent male sexual anxiety like oh i've got a giant beam that i can shoot with well i can't even aim it and it's uncontrolled it makes me powerful but if you i will 
penetrate you and hurt you with my beams. And, um, and I thought that that, you know, encapsulated something. Whereas Rogue, to me, was a character that really defined something I identified with, you know, in my, in my young college age, sort of, if I touch you, I gain powers and abilities, uh, and yet I seem to lose all sense of who I am and meld my identity with yours. What to do? And I, I thought that, I know that um, obviously Rogue has progressed from here in the comics, but you know, I didn't want to pick her up in the middle or towards the end of her, of her psychological journey. I think, you know, um, for me, I wanted to take her back to the beginnings where she's still coming to terms with what it means to um, have a power that is also a weakness. Yeah, and then kind of just touching on, on, on the whole rogue Remy relationship, you know, uh, she even, she has a line in the book. She, she calls it out, you know, we're going to be like one of them snarky sitcom couples you think will get together, but never do, you know, for decades, they were kind of the, the Sam and Diane of, of the X-Men. And, you know, in, in larger media, you know, the nineties were filled with attempts to recreate that, you know, the cheers dynamic, uh, you know, from, from like Ross and Rachel on friends to, you know, it, it was older and Scully. Mulder and Scully. Yes, there you go. Even even in non-comedy uh, formats. But, uh, you know, I, I was kind of curious, you know, uh, who were your sort of benchmark couples for that sort of, you know, will they, won't they interplay? Oh, you mean as a fan or in terms of the writing of this book? Sure. <laughs> a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Start, start, start as a fan. Start as a fan. <laughs> as a fan. Well, I... There were so many. I first of all, I was for, for um, viewers or listeners who don't know, uh, Sam and Diane were on Cheers. I don't know if anyone still remembers. And Diane was like the Felix Unger of the. She was the you know prissy, prim, uh, slightly pretentious one, and and Sam was the sloppy, relaxed, sporty, good old boy. And I think that that. Um, that dynamic is always a fun dynamic when I, I, I wish sometimes it will be the female heterosexual character who's like the sloppy loose one. Melanie Griffith actually played that in one movie. But anyway, that's, that's beside the point. It's, it's um, okay, I do have to say this. The, the new Jurassic Park with Chris Pratt and, and oh God, who was it? Was it oh, um, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. Bryce Dallas Howard. It was what? Bryce Dallas Howard. Was that, was she was the prim? Yes. Yes, that was done very badly. I would like the idea that, you know, oh, we shall have the woman be the buzzkill. Um, anyway, that's, that's not so fun. So I think that that kind of a will they or won't they relationship got played out and I got aggravated by it more than I was pleased by it, to be honest. I loved you know, um, Sam and Diane, but then the characters that didn't play that out were much more interesting to me. On, on Cheers, I was a really big fan of Frasier and Lilith, where they were both sort of, it was, it was as if Morticia and uh, Gomez Adams were in a more dysfunctional relationship, but with just as much passion. And um, 
And so I think, and you know, in romance for a long time, I think that I, I you know, I, I was, I have literary cred. I had a, an MFA from Columbia and it used to be, I would say, I read comics and romance and people were like, ah, it's both. And then, you know, it was like, oh, comics, comics are fine, but romance, ah, you know, and I, I tried to say, no, look guys, there's, there's, you know, wonderful, wonderful books and stories and writing and romance too. One of the things that romance got over really quickly was this idea that all sexual tension is lost the moment that two characters shook. It's, it's just, you know, for, I think for a long time, people didn't know what to do. It's like, oh, there's all this charge between the people. And the minute that anything happens, oh, you've just lost it. No one will be interested anymore. And I'm thinking, have you ever had a relationship? Because that's not the way it happens. You know, there's, there's all kinds of uh, tension that can reaccumulate as people try to figure, you know, things out, a la Frasier and Lilith. Um, but... You know, I, I felt that for me, the fun of, of doing Rogue and Remy is I wanted to do them in as modern a way as possible. I didn't want it to just be the fact that we cannot connect physically is the only thing keeping us apart. And the minute that we actually do, all the charge is lost and all the chemistry and the, and the conflict is lost. And I think that... Um, one of the ways you do that is by investing enough interesting nuggets in the other relationships so that people have different kinds of attractions. So I think Rogue is, um, without giving everything away, there's another character who comes in and it's not a romantic pull, it's a mentor pull. It is, you know, if you think of The Devil Wears Prada and that whole pull of you know, there's going to be this older woman who's powerful and, um, and, and, and feared and respected. And she is going to show me how to acquire that kind of control. That's a romance too, in its way. It's a, you know, uh, I don't know. So, and other kinds of friendships. So I, I tried to have enough of that built in so that it wasn't just about that male-female sexual polarity and nothing more. And ironically, I got those sort of storytelling um, tropes from more modern romance, not just, you know, 1980s era romance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Rogue in general, you know, we, and we've mentioned this, you know, she does have one of the more sort of melodramatic power sets uh, in, in X-Men. You know, the, the, the whole, I, I can't touch you unless I put you in a coma thing. You got to play with a version of that 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 was a little bit more uh, utilitarian. It's not the right word, but like she gets to have a fun sort of young Spider-Man, like actually like play around with her powers type thing. You know what I mean? It's not just you know Cody's in the rear view, obviously, but it's not that immediate like kiss someone and oh my god, what have I done type thing. Um, you know, what was kind of the thought in, in tweaking that part of, of Anna Marie's story? Oh, I guess, you know, for me, I, I love drama. I love stories that can be darkly dramatic and tense and then take you to a much lighter place. 
And I'm, you know, when I'm writing, I'm trying to write the story that if I were a reader, wasn't me, I would be entertained by. And I, I know that that kind of fun moment of, I, you know, in screenplay writing books, I call it the promise of the premise or the, I don't know, the fun and games. I, there should be a fun and games. There should be a section where somebody gets to enjoy their power and play with it a bit. And, you know, I love those. That's, I, to me, that's part of the whole superhero fun. So I wanted, I didn't want to lose the dark and angsty, but I didn't want it to be the only, the only, uh, tone in it. You know, I take the Queen's Gambit, you know, you get so much pleasure in that movie from watching the heroine just do her thing and learn how good she can be. I wanted some of that. Mm. And then on the other hand, you know, you've, you've got Gambit who, you know, if ever there was an X-Men character who plays well to someone with a romance novel background, uh, it is definitely Remy LeBeau, uh, you know, uh, at, at his, but you know, it's he's one of those ones that sometimes I've seen writers struggle with. You know, at his best, he's so charming. You wonder whether that's his primary mutation, and at his worst, he he can come off. And, and this is really speaking to the '90s cartoon more than anything else. You know, he comes off as sleazy. <laughs> you know, how do you? What is that perfect balance with with, with Gambit? Oh gosh, I. You know, I, I don't know. I try as much as I can to approach all characters from the inside rather mm -hmm. than from the outside. So instead of, you know, I don't think, hmm, how can I have Remy say charming, witty things? I try and think, okay, here's the situation right now. He is the kind of character who tries to charm his way out of trouble. It is his first line of defense. So what's the nature of the trouble? And, you know, and if he, if he relies on being charming, he's gotta be a good read of people. So he's, there he is trying to get out of a particular fix, getting his read on who uh, Anna Marie Rogue is. And, you know, and so it's sort of all in the service of that scene rather than, you know, thinking like, it's hard to just say be charming in a vacuum. You know, what is charm <laughs> except being, you know, very, very related to someone and, you know, and having some humor and lightness in your touch, but also having something underneath that feels like the person's connecting with you. And so it's that, it's that balancing act. Um, but I, I approached him as I approached any character, but his, you know, actors, often approach any line. I think there's, I forgot what, there are different intentions. You can be trying to seduce or to bully or to, you know, um, I, 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 there's all these different intentions you can have. And, you know, Remy's is mostly to seduce. That is what he's going to try and do to get himself, you know, what he wants. Okay, so we're going to hit a spoiler for the last third of the book here, but I need to ask this. So if listeners, if you want to avoid the spoiler, jump forward a couple of minutes. Uh, but I absolutely adored your take on Chandra. The, the externals in general have in the comics always been sort of flat. 
they're sort of like, wow, we're immortal and megalomaniacal. But the this sassy contra was just wonderful. I kind of, when she first appeared, she's, I pictured Elaine Stritch just <laughs> sitting there in the middle of, as this immortal mutant. Where did your take on that character come from? Oh my God, that was, okay, so there I was, you know, getting to the point of the book that I, you know, it's, it's big superhero, you know, it's, it's all these characters gathered together and gonna have the big set piece conflict. And I was freaking out. I was at that point reading an annotated version of The Big Sleep and I noticed that at one point, Raymond Chandler had said, I cannot write a scene with more than three people in it, so do not ask me to. And I was thinking, if Raymond Chandler can't do it, I certainly can't. What made me think I could handle all these people? And I, you know, and my mom needs me and you can't go out without three masks and sanitizer over your head. And I, I don't know what I'm doing. And, um, uh, and then I thought, okay, Whitney, calm down. You've got to find a way to make this delicious to yourself or you're not going to get through this right. You know, what would be fun? What would be fun? And, you know, I am a pop culture person and I started to think, uh, you know, also it being the pandemic, I was watching really bizarre things late at night, two in the morning, let me watch a love boat rerun. And, um, and I was watching a lot of older stuff. And in the seventies, you would have a lot of older film stars. I say older, I began to calculate their ages. I'm like, oh my God, they're like, what, my age? You know, everyone's like, help her, help her. She might fall over. And I'm thinking, no, you know, they're, they're in their 50s. This is, they should not be falling over. But anyway, um, or some of them maybe have been in their 60s and 70s pretending to be in their 50s. But anyway, there was a particular scene in uh, The Love Boat where Ginger Rogers comes on. <laughs> And she is both, you know, stiffer and, you know, clearly not in perfect shape and still so conscious of her superiority over everyone else. And so you've got all of these skinny, jittery, coked up, you know, <laughs> minor actors. Um, I think that the new kids on the block used to do a, a version of Gavin. I can't pronounce anyone's name anymore. Captain Steubing was played by Gavin. McLeod. McLeod. And there's a version of the spoof who's like, I'm a lucky guy. How'd I get so lucky? How'd I get here? And, you know, and, and then into all this, Swan's, um, well, she doesn't swan because she's so heavily girdled. But there comes Ginger Rogers, lacquered and stiff in her girdle and so conscious of the fact that she is of the golden age of heroes. And these are lesser mortals that are, you know, like ants, you know, around her but she's pretending to be somebody's aunt and she's, you know, <laughs> sort of, and I just thought, oh God, I love not only what she's pretending to be, but all the weirdness of this underneath. And I, it was almost a joke. I was thinking like, yeah, I bet, you know, one of these like immortals, you know, that's what they would really be like. And I thought that, that this is it. I have to write Cantra of, of the floating, <laughs> Fires? I can't even remember. Um, as if she were Ginger Rogers on the love boat. And once I did that, 
she came alive for me. And that's where like all of a sudden everything else fell to the wayside. The fact that I'd written in all these characters and I had to keep track of where they all were. And I had a big fight scene to do. I was like, as long as I've got Kandra as Ginger Rogers, hating everyone for being so inferior, I can have so much fun with this. Uh, so Rogue and frankly to an even larger degree Gambit uh, are known for having over-the-top Claremontian accents. <laughs> um, how did you balance, you know, that the, the accent that these characters have with, you know, making them readable? <laughs> well, um, so the, the first rule of dialect is first do no harm. And um, in, so I, 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 I barely remember anything that I learned in Columbia's MFA program. I went there for two years. I, um, I, I, I know I, I, you know, I know I learned a lot of things, but it then got covered over with a lot of the storytelling things that I learned from DC you know, where Denny O'Neill and, and Paul Levitz and a lot of other people influenced me. This guy, Neil, who used to write, you know. So I learned so much <laughs> afterwards. But one thing I do remember from Columbia's MFA program, and that was a look of fear and horror and kind of, you know, like, do, do dialect, do, don't do it. Don't do dialect, don't do it, don't do it. And um, there were many reasons not to do it. And that was even a time when people were not as frightened of offending the people who talk like that. Then, um, briefly in my life, I, uh, I, I decided I was going to try and become a speech and language uh, uh, therapist. I thought, you know, this will be great. I'll learn speech and language and I'll be able to write and do this career. Anyway, you cannot do that speech and language thing incredibly hard. I had to take linguistics and I was, anyway, and like the physiology of the larynx, it, 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 it was a nightmare. My mother-in-law is a speech pathologist. Oh, yes. Okay. So there, you know, you don't want to mess around with this, but you know, the little bit of them talking about dialect, um, basically they have, you know, one injunction to you when you're evaluating someone's speech and that's, don't do dialect, don't do dialect, don't go there. So, all of those things were like in my ears, like don't, don't make fun of people's dialects or seem like you are. And, and that was balanced against, you know, the memory of Chris Claremont's, you know, but there were many fewer words because it was in a comic, you know? And I just thought, you know what? <laughs> I won't do that. I, the reader can say sugar, but I'm gonna write sugar. And, you know, and I will just start it in this small uh, town in, in uh, Mississippi, and I will be reminding everyone that people are actually Southern, uh, but I will, you know, and I will try and get some of the rhythms in, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going sugar. Because <laughs> I'm a Jewish girl from the Upper West Side of New York. Uh, what, was there a, a, a point though where you were keeping count of, of your sugars uh, and your shares? <laughs> <laughs> I probably should have. I did, I did see one review called me out for using the word porcine too many times. And I thought, but he's a giant pig. <laughs> but anyway, um, no, I, 
I probably should have. I'm sure I overdid it. And I'm sure that, you know, I will go back and look at it. And, uh, you know, if they ever do an audio version, I'll probably be, you know, hitting myself in the head again and again. Say, take that one out. I do. I will say this. No matter how under the gun I am, I do try and read at least most of my dialogue out loud to make sure it doesn't sound excruciating. Uh, so I do, I did, I did force myself to listen to some of those shares and sugars. <laughs> um, I, I, I will ask real quick, Nate, since we're talking about the, the theoretical audiobook of it all, uh, you know, who, who is your sort of ideal narrative uh, or, or narrator voice for, for that? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the name that sort of popped into my head was Holly Hunter. I don't even know if that's mm. right, but that was just what sort of sprang because she's, she, you know, can do wonderful Southern and she's so funny. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Gosh. You guys have a, a thought? I, I don't, but Holly Hunter's a damn good answer. So yeah. I don't think I'm going to follow up with anything. I was kind of, I was looking up like the actresses who've either played or voiced Rogue uh, over the years. And, and, you know, of course, coming through the cartoon, like I did, you know, there, there's the, um, the actress whose name I've already forgotten. Gosh, darn it. No, no, no. From the, uh, from the original cartoon, uh, you know, but, but that's like the, the most sort of heavily phoneticized version of Rogue's accent that you're going to get. You probably don't want that. <laughs> it was like, well, well, that makes Anna Paquin's performance look like non-regional diction. <laughs> I did listen to some regional accents in the beginning, just to listen a little bit so it was in my ear. But I, you know, that was just for myself to sort of be in that in that world mm -hmm. and um and i spoke with you know a friend who's a waitress in the diner and i you know i i um i did what i could to sort of you know get myself immersed enough that i, I felt like it was real you mm -hmm. know um but yeah voice actors that's a good uh I'm sure that after this, some of my friends who are out of work uh, actors are going to say, why didn't you mention me? <laughs> uh, so uh, as we're getting near the end, we want to just hit on some of the other things that you're, you're doing, working on and have worked on. Um, and I know it's always dicey to ask about, you know, might-have-beens and could-bes, uh, but with DC's recent and by recent within the past you know two years and change emphasis on all ages and yaogns uh would you ever want to go back to do another story set in the mystic you world oh you know i i could because i i definitely had more stories in my mind there um in terms of uh, zatanna and and maybe a, a fun road trip to hell with uh with, with her Faustian guy. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I could see, I mean, I, I loved working with Mike Norton on Mystic U. That was really fun. And um, I, my, my editor is, is now at a different house. It's like, there's been so much change, but mm. I, you know, I don't stay awake at night thinking about it, but I, I, I would, I would, I, I never say no out of hand to anything. 
And then the one thing you've got coming up that I definitely wanted to make sure that we got in there, uh, you're starting a Sandman podcast next month. Yes, yes, I am with um, Lanny Diane Rich from Chipperish Media. So I just was, she is a really good story analyst and um, has done, you know, shows on Buffy and um, uh, Outlander and other, you know, shows and often looking at story structure and storytelling through that lens. And I approached her and I said, you know, I would love to do this with you because I feel like we could both talk about story. I could also come at this from a reread after many years away. And having worked on the series, uh, I was assistant editor and did the letter columns from the season of Mist through, I guess, Week Lives. Um, and I never stopped reading Sandman and being involved with, with Sandman. And, you know, she would be coming at it for the first time. So our plan is, I think that's going to, the teaser is up. I think it's going to be uh, starting at the end of June. We'll work our way through the comics that are the fodder for the, um, the, the fodder for the TV series. We'll take a little break and we'll come back and we'll start looking at the Netflix TV series when it comes out. Um, from, from, from your, your angle, uh, you know, your side of the microphone, you know, is, is this, mostly appreciation, uh, something a little bit more academic or, or, you know, a sharing of how some of the sausage got made? Oh, I think um, a little bit of how the sausage got made, but also a look at story. Because I think when I have taught graphic novel writing or, or worked with people or just talked about story, it's so much fun to look at how Neil did some of the things that he did. And I think it can be a great way to think about world building, about story. Um, I, I learned so much from watching Neil weave that whole series. And I think that, you know, taking a deep dive into how the story works, why it works, you know, uh, all of that just seems really valuable to, to weed like a writer. Is there, is there a, a behind the scenes story from, from your time at Vertigo, from you know, editing Sandman, working under Karen Berger that uh, you know, stands out to you as, as, a, as a favorite? Oh gosh, you know, there are, there are so many that I sort of don't know, um, don't know where to begin. Neil used to stay up really late writing, which I don't believe he does anymore but he was a late night person. And I would often be you know, at the offices later as the assistant editor is still doing ballooning or lettering and you know, the uh, Karen Berger had left. And so if Neil had questions, he would be calling and I would be answering. And so I spent a lot of time talking to Neil and it was that sort of, he was taking a late night break from writing and I was still in the offices, but all of the crazy had died down. It was, you know, before I had kids or any big responsibilities. And so there was this lovely rapport that developed where we just had what felt like a really long conversation. And um, so that's, I guess that's not a, I, I have lots of stories, but for me, that was sort of what I remembered about that time was mm -hmm. that I spent more time talking to Neil than to any other human for a while. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I uh, one of the things I was curious was, you know, about was, you know, who you'd kind of kept in touch with from those days. But given you mentioned you're working on something for Ahoy, uh, clearly, uh, you know, 
Tom Pyre, Stuart Moore, those guys are still in the mix. <laughs> They're still in the mix. I'm having a lot of fun um, working on, um, it's, it's a humorous, uh, mostly female cast, uh, time travel with um, a spooky building. And um, it's, it's, it's got some Upper West Side stuff in it and some time travel. And uh, my love of uh, the 1970s comes in handy. Hmm. Interesting. Um, any any timetable on uh, a formal announcement or anything like that? Um, I think I I know that it could be coming soon. So, um, but I'm I'm actually overdue. I was supposed to talk to Alain, the artist, today to say. Can we do this or are we doing that? You know, so I think uh, it's it's just we're, we're just trying to make sure we. Um, I, I have I I I have been told I have written scripts that are, are not completely easy to draw, but Alan says he's having a lot of fun doing them, and um, and he's adding like glorious detail. I mean, I've been so blessed when I work with artists where you ask for stuff and you want a world and the feeling of a world and these incredible backgrounds. And just, you know, so yeah, so that's, it could be coming soon, but uh, I, I just, uh, I can't say anything until I check with Alan and Tom. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, well, well, let's, let, let, let's cool down here. Uh, one of our, our sort of regular uh, segments, we like to ask uh, creators about uh, their pets. So uh, tell us about your dog. Sure. Um, he's lying on the floor there. So my, my dog is a Chinook. Um, he's 75 pounds and he's young and he's not neutered because the breeder said he's of a rare bloodline, the last of his kind in the Northeast of this particular bloodline and he must be preserved. And so he um, has a pair that's the size of like two chihuahuas as far as I can tell. Um, and, uh, and so he's like basically a really sweet dog unless he scents a female at which point he's just like some kind of insane cartoon dog. <laughs> um, but he coexists in the house with my 18 year old Burmese cat who is mostly relegated to the bathroom because he's no longer completely, you know, continent. Um, but the funny thing about him is, so people don't always realize I have a cat until they hear the sort of shrieks from the, you know, in those gothic, where there's always some child you keep in the basement and it's like, <laughs> and people want to know why I have a baby, you know, locked in the other room, it's, but it's a Burmese. He does come out and then he pees on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> like they do. Like they do, yeah. Now, are you actively like looking to 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 breed the dog, <laughs> or? Um, I feel. Um, yeah, I I have been wanting this to happen because I I was thinking finally I would like to, um, as they say, have him neutered. Um, but uh, this whole process has been taking so long because I've had to have his hips certified and prove that his vision is twenty twenty. And uh, now there, there seems to be a, perhaps a nice young lady that he's going to get fixed up with. But at this point, I, I don't know. I, I'm so used to him this way. I guess, you know, he rolls on his back and I'm thinking like, oh, you are like two other pets that I would be losing. <laughs> I'm sorry, is this a really inappropriate? This is my, I, 
You can cut it. <laughs> I asked a question about dog breeding, so I pay. I got what I paid for. <laughs> oh man! He's but you know, yeah, he's not as terrible as you would think. He's actually like a really sweet dog and comes back when called, and you know. So it's. I I did think he was going to be like. Um, out of control. Okay, no one remembers Tenth Kingdom, which was this miniseries. I absolutely do, and you referenced it in the book, and I was like, oh my, I forgot to put that question in. Oh, John Larroquette. Yes, Rutger Hauer. Yes, I love Tenth Kingdom. I forced my children to watch it as regularly as we watched the Poseidon Adventure, and um, and the funny thing is my dog is exactly like Wolf. And so I should have called him Wolf, but everyone would think it was a very generic name as opposed to specifically Wolf from Tennessee. Or that you were a big fan of Wolf Blitzer. Uh, <laughs> yes. Ah, oh, man. But yeah, no, I have to imagine mating is hard right now, you know, with the pandemic and, any, and, yeah, and everything, you know. Uh, I don't know. I was about to go into a dog tinder joke. I'm moving on. Um, <laughs> uh, That'll be my next comment. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, I'll take that. Uh, uh, what uh, What are you reading right now? Ooh, um, well, let's see. First of all, I am belatedly reading uh, this. I'm loving mm-hmm. it. Uh, that was Vision, um, the, the, the first. I I don't know why I hadn't read that before because I, I had meant to and then I, I don't know what happened. So I'm reading that. I am, um, oh gosh, I just finished a bunch of things. I just started uh, The Exorcist, which I had never read before. And, um, and then I'm trying to remember, there's a, there's a bunch of things I've been reading. Uh, there's also, I think, a, a new Tess Gerritsen uh, sort of gothics uh, book, which I'm going to begin. And, um, oh, and I also have, a, I, I just got some of Mike Carey's um, X-Men to catch up on. Ooh. So I've been a little all over the place. But yeah, a little horror, a little gothic romance, a little vision, and uh, some X-Men. A little of everything. Well, that, that, that's great. Uh, this has been an absolute delight. Final question. Uh, how can people uh, follow you online and keep up with everything you have going on? Oh, yes. Um, first of all, what's my Twitter? It's at a Quitney, right? That is my Twitter, I believe. Um, you can find me. I, I have an author page on Facebook. I think it's Elisa Sheckley Quitney. Uh, and I have a website, which I sometimes remember to update. Um, and uh, and just uh, uh, it, the podcast is going to be called Endless, uh, a, a Sandman podcast. And yes, those are the things that are happening. And that is where you can find me. <laughs> and I'm chasing after my dog and his chihuahuas. <laughs> All right. Elisa, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, meaning you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Chris's on Infinite Earths, and a ton of great comics criticism at ComicsXF.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics 
where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, that one time Pete Wisdom stopped a vampire invasion from the moon. WMQA.